And let's uh, open a word of prayer, shall we? Father, thank you for the gift of, of coming together and worshiping you and remembering together that you are sovereign, that you are good, that you are in control. We ask that you would open your word to us this morning and, and uh, open our hearts to what you would have to say. And we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, good morning. Uh, my name is Andrew. I'm a pastor on staff here at Christ Community, and it's good to be here with you. And I, uh, I wanted to tell you, I, I recently had, my family and I had a, a fun adventure this last week. We uh, went on vacation together, and uh, we, uh, we had a, a bit of an experience. So for this trip, we, we have an 18-month-old. We were actually delayed, just, so not just in the airport, but delayed for 10 hours total on this trip that we just took. Now, everyone feels bad until I tell them it was to Hawaii, is where we were going. And then people kind of go, oh, yeah, well, what are you going to do, right? Um, <laughs> but uh, so, yeah, 10 hours delayed. And so my family and I, we found ourselves um, in lots of airports across the country. And uh, one of those airports on our way back was the Las Vegas airport, which is just one of my favorites. Um, and by favorite, I mean I can't stand it. Um, because someone, when they designed this airport, they really thought outside the box, and they thought, you know what, you know what airports really need are slot machines everywhere, uh, constantly making noise and waking up babies trying to sleep. Um, brilliant idea. But anyway, so my family and I were wandering around the terminal waiting for a flight, because when you have a toddler in an airport, that's what you do, and all of a sudden, uh, in, the, in the terminal, this alarm goes off, this incredibly loud and disruptive alarm, and... Uh, a voice, you know, this automated voice comes over the loudspeaker and it, basically, it says, you know, stay calm. It's the first thing. Stay calm. Uh, an alarm has gone off. We're, we're, we're investigating why, but I'm sure it's fine. Um, <laughs> and uh, that was pretty weird. That's never happened to me. I've never been in an airport when an alarm has gone off. But what was even weirder is I, as I looked around, nobody cared. <laughs> nobody was paying attention at all. Uh, people were, they were walking around, talking, buying Starbucks, you know, playing the slot machines. <laughs> And uh, it was like nothing happened. And I knew it wasn't because they didn't hear it, because it was incredibly loud. Uh, it was that they didn't care. And uh, I even found myself, I thought, you know, I don't really feel that scared right now either. And I was thinking about that. Uh, maybe you've had a similar experience, something that should have scared you, but it didn't. Um, and I was thinking about that this week. Why does that happen to us? And uh, I, I think it happens because deep down, you know, we hear these stories of airport tragedy or... Uh, bombs going off, uh, or uh, the worst things that could happen in our world at any time. And we tend to think of them, and we think that that, that, that will never happen to us. And uh, that's probably the only sane way to live as a human being, because I can't imagine what it would be like uh, if, you, if you thought about what's the worst that could happen to me at, at any given moment in your life. Uh, so, but the danger in my mind, though, is that we, we, if we take that um, that idea, and it's really the danger that this text addresses this morning, if we take that idea that this can't happen to me, and we apply it not simply to the physical dangers we might encounter, but if we begin applying it to the moral dangers, and the spiritual dangers in our life, uh, what can happen? And uh, we live in a culture and a time that is uh, obsessed with the moral and spiritual failures of our leaders. Uh, it's just, you know, for better or worse, that's where we are. And we when we encounter these stories of, of public failure, uh, of whether it's you know, politicians or celebrities or even pastors, um, we have uh, you know, several reactions maybe when we hear that. Maybe we feel sorry for this person or we're angry at them. Uh, we may judge them. Uh, we may pity them. Maybe we're disappointed in them, what they've done, or we're ashamed of what they've done. But so rarely, and uh, maybe too rarely, do we ever relate to what they've done. 
And uh, in other words, I think we, we tend to think their mistake is so bad, it's so evil, that in our minds we simply don't think that we are capable of doing the same. Uh, we don't think what's happening to them could ever happen to us. And uh, there are a few things uh, more dangerous to, to, in human life in general, but the Christian life in particular, than that attitude. It can't happen to me. Because God, throughout his word, is constantly reminding us that the worst evils and the worst failures, the most despicable things that human beings can and, and have done, we are all capable of doing. He's constantly reminding us, do not think that this can't happen to you. Do not think this can't happen to you. And in many ways, the point of our story this morning, which we just heard read, is really about the spiritual failure of God's people on, on, a, on a national scale. And it's God's warning to us that we are always capable of the same. Because if we live life and we, are not, and we feel we are not capable of incredible spiritual failure, if we think we are not capable of walking away from God, if we are not capable of ignoring him and making incredible mistakes in our life, uh, it's like walking around in a lot of ways. It's like walking around in a burning building. The room is collapsing around us. The alarms are blaring. And we are simply tidying up the room as if nothing is happening. In many ways, ignoring the alarm is the most dangerous thing we can do in life. So, uh, our, our story this morning is meant to be that alarm for us, for God's people, uh, against ignoring God's warning and ignoring his judgment and ignoring the consequences of our decisions and uh, not learning from our mistakes and, and not learning from the mistakes of others, those around us. So as we, as we walk through the story of 2 Kings 17, we're going to jump to chapter 25 uh, here and there as well, which is really the story of the fall of Israel and Judah. And, and I'll explain historically where we are in just a minute in the story. Uh, we will pause throughout their story um, and, and, and apply the lessons to our lives today. So if you haven't turned yet to 2 Kings, the book of 2 Kings, that's where we're, we'll be this morning. You can do that now. And if you've been with us for the last few weeks or months, you know uh, that we are preaching through the big story of the Bible uh, on Sunday morning. And uh, we're also reading through the Bible as a congregation together. And uh, if, we know, so we, you know, we did what, what you should do. We started in the beginning. <laughs> We started in the book of Genesis, and uh, we've worked our way up to today, and now we are in the period of the kings of Israel and our story. And as, before we move into there, as we look back on where we've been, I cannot help but notice that in so many ways, uh, the history of God's people in the Old Testament is a history of God's warning, a history of his warning to us. And it, so it started in Genesis, God created a good and beautiful world for humanity to cultivate and enjoy with him. That's the message of the beginning of the book of Genesis. He gave them one warning in that story. He said, there's this one tree, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Do not eat of it. It is it's bad for you. Don't eat of this tree. And of course, humanity in Adam and Eve ignore that warning completely. And uh, because of that, the world begins to unravel and fall apart because of sin. And you flash for forward to the story of Abraham, yeah, a very important figure in the Old Testament, and his family, and really the nation of Israel comes out of Abraham's family. And uh, so we begin to focus on the nation of Israel, and they're rescued out of Egypt, if you're familiar with that story. Uh, the ten, you know, God brings ten plagues against Pharaoh, and they, he parts the Red Sea, and they're rescued from Egypt. And right after he does that, God gives them laws, and he commands Israel to live according to them with a strong warning. And he basically says, if you ignore these commands, it will ruin your life. You will lose the land that I'm giving you today. 
and this loss of land, uh, the promised land, uh, is basically the threat of being conquered by a foreign nation and being taken away into that, into that nation. So that's what God's talking about there. And the, and, the, and the Bible calls this exile. When God's people are conquered and taken into a foreign place, it's called the exile. And God's saying, don't disobey or, or you will be exiled. And uh, as we, after the, and the history of Israel so far, if you've been reading along, has largely been one of ignoring these warnings, just completely ignoring them. And there are a few good leaders mixed in. There's a Samuel here, and there's a David here, and a few others. But for the most part, uh, this nation is led by by corrupt people and bad kings, and the nation drifts further and further uh, from God's commands. And finally, things get so bad that the kingdom of Israel splits into two kingdoms. There's the northern kingdom, which keeps the name Israel, and then there's the southern kingdom, which is called Judah from here on out. And this, of course, is a warning from God in and of itself that things are not going well. The kingdom was not supposed to split this way. But, of course, people, they ignore this. They keep going as if nothing has happened. Nothing's changed. And so eventually these two kingdoms fall so far from God, they sin so dramatically against him that they are exiled. And that's our story this morning. Israel first, the northern kingdom in, in 722 B.C. is exiled by the Assyrian Empire. And then Judah next in 586 B.C. by Babylon. And our text explains why this happens this way in in 2 Kings. Chapter 17. Here's why they are exiled. And this occurred because the people of Israel, starting in verse 7, had sinned against the Lord their God, who had brought them up out of the land of Egypt from under the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and had feared other gods. And then skipping to verse 11. And they did wicked things, provoking the Lord to anger. And they served idols, of which the Lord had said to them, You shall not do this. Yet the Lord warned Israel and Judah by every prophet and every seer, saying, Turn from your evil ways and keep my commandments and my statutes, in accordance with all the law that I commanded your fathers and that I sent to you by my servants, the prophets. But they would not listen. They were stubborn as their fathers had been who did not believe in the Lord their God. And it's after this that the the people are taken out of their land. They're exiled from the promised land to live among their conquerors. And this is a very sad and depressing moment in biblical history. But there's several noteworthy things here in this story. The first is, and if, if you've been reading along with us, you really feel this, is the incredible tragedy of this moment. Because in so many ways, this whole story has been pointing to Israel and the promised land. It's been pointing to God's salvation of the world in this nation named Israel in this place called the promised land. And and literally, after so much disobedience and so much failure and so much blatant carelessness in their relationship with God, the, the exodus is literally undone. So in that story, God saves Israel out of slavery, out of Egypt, and into the promised land. And here now... In the exile, he takes them out of the promised land and back into the land of slavery, this time in Assyria and in Babylon. It's a very depressing moment, but not the end of the story. So hang on to that. Not the end of the story. Second noteworthy thing, despite how far, how far the people continue to fall, God always warns. He always warns them. Our text says that God sent prophet after prophet after prophet to both kingdoms, warning again and again and again that exile was coming, the alarm was blaring even if no one was listening. And if we bring this slide back, you'll see here 
There are, these prophets are sent to the southern and northern kingdoms, and, and we're actually going to have a whole series on, on what these prophets said specifically. But look at all these people who were sent to them to warn them. These, these men dedicated their lives to warning Israel and Judah about what was coming. So much warning received. Third noteworthy thing, and perhaps the most important, um, the more the people sin in our story uh, and follow after idols, the less they are able to hear from God. If you look at verse 15, it says, they went after false idols and became false, became false people. And the the, the Hebrew word here for false means worthless or empty or purposeless. The people, they ran after these other gods, gods that did not exist, gods made of wood and stone, and they basically became as useless, as deaf, and as blind to God as these little idols themselves. And this not only led to incredible spiritual blindness, which we've already talked about, but it led to incredible moral evil in the nation of Israel. And in verse 17, we read that their idol worship was so bad they began sacrificing their own children in the worship of these gods without a second thought with no twinge of guilt at all. They were completely dead to God's warning, and therefore, they were completely dead to God's goodness. Could not discern right and wrong anymore. And this is important, because in the Bible, and in our own lives, this is always true. We become what we worship. We become what we worship. If you worship a fake God, you become a fake, hollow person. And we are tempted equally by empty idols in our society today. They may look different, but they're basically the same. Money, power, acclaim, whatever it is, that list could go on, but they they don't deliver. They simply move us further from God's voice of warning in our lives. It's what they do. And eventually, this will make us oppressive and evil and heartless people, as heartless as an an idol statue. And uh, this is important because it teaches us something so incredibly terrifying about what idolatry does. Uh, Idolatry has this way of tempting us and saying, just this one time, just once, trust in me. Just this one time, do it, do it for the money. Get all you can, just this one time, get all you can out of it. Just this one time, do it for fun. Just this one time, do it for the attention. Who cares, right? It's just one time. You can apologize later. This one time, trust in me. You need this. You deserve this. But the more you listen to that voice, the less you are able to ever turn back. Just once becomes all the time in a blink. And the more we listen to that voice, the less we can hear from God. And as dangerous as it is to sin, to, to, to have an action of disobedience against God, the real danger comes when we stop hearing him. If we do that, if we, if we, far, if we fall that far away from him, and there's no end to the evil that we can do, if God does not literally get in the way and stop us from doing it, And this is Israel's story this morning. As one commentator puts it, in the end, the exile came not because Israel sinned, but because they spurned God's offers of reconciliation. They just stopped listening. They thought they had become immune to God's judgment, and so they they ignored his warnings. They did not remember that at some point in their relationship with God and, and in every human relationship with God, at some point, second chances do become last chances. And they forgot that. This is incredibly dangerous. And it leads to our first lesson from this text, which is do not ignore God's warning. Do not ignore God's warning. And we too, we will, we will all of us sin. None of us are perfect. There will be periods in our life where we 
distance ourselves from God by what we do. But God is faithful. He will always warn you in those moments. He will always, there, there is a warning hidden in every sin that you commit. Whether it comes from another person or your own conscience or the consequence, there's always a warning. But so often we miss them. And you, this is the constant refrain, right, of every person who's suffered a great public moral failure is there were warning signs all along the way that I did not see, I did not heed. And our day-to-day lives, our day-to-day lives they prove helpful in this kind of spiritual reality here. Is in our daily lives, we all understand the importance of a good warning sign, and we actively look for them, and we make them easy to see for that reason. For example, if you see a sign like this, you know, if you don't want to look like this guy, then you shouldn't touch this, you know, this wire. You laugh, but it's clear, right? <laughs> you get it. Now, most people in this room understand this dynamic of warning, right? Otherwise, you wouldn't have made it here. Uh, you, you would have long ago been hit by a car or electrocuted or poisoned. I mean, think about how often warnings save your life. But how rarely, and I'm guilty of this true, how rarely we apply this principle to our spiritual lives. We do what we want, when we want, how we want, regardless of the consequences. And sin in the Bible in so many ways is like looking at a warning sign just like this and doing the exact opposite. It's like looking at that warning sign and, say, and, it, and thinking it says, go ahead, do this, it'll be great, it'll be fine. Now, the thing is, with our spiritual sins, right, we don't necessarily feel the physical effects of what we're doing, depending on the sin we're committing. But that we, are, we, are, we are destroying ourselves just as if we touched a live wire. And if you do that enough, right, you deaden yourself to it, and you, you escalate the sin. It gets worse and worse, and it pulls you in deeper and deeper and deeper. And we see this dynamic in the text itself. Israel begins in verse 9 with, with private idolatry in the, heart, in the secret place, in the heart. Later on in the passage, though, that their failure explodes into public life, right? It escalates. And now they are worshiping idols on every high hill, every town, every city. They ignore the warning enough, and it doesn't work anymore. And so just like in our, in our everyday lives, we need small warning signs in our spiritual lives that guard us from bigger and more devastating mistakes. And again, we, 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 we practice this principle in our everyday lives. We, we go out of our way to make warning signs every day. Wash your hands. Don't forget to call so-and-so so that we avoid making mistakes. So do this in your spiritual life. There are lots of ways to add these warning signs to our lives. I think the two most important uh, I want to mention here, the first is God's word, this book. This is a warning sign for us. Uh, it, we see it even in the story today. When God sends the prophets to Israel and to Judah, they are basically pointing to God, to Moses' law that God gave Moses, and they're saying, look at what this says. We're destroying ourselves. Turn back. It's a warning sign. So know God's word. Open it every day. That's why we're doing open here. It's this practice of opening this word every day, letting it speak to us. Because the better you know this book, the more you will be able to know God's design. You will know right and wrong, which we need help doing. And second, you'll be able to hear God's warning in your life. And the second thing we can do is other people. Other people are a powerful warning in our lives. And we have a way on our own of justifying our actions and ignoring our own conscience in ways that other people don't let us get away with. And uh, if you're married, you have a spouse, you know that your spouse doesn't let you get away with anything, right? Uh, that's part of what they're supposed to do. And as believers, that, we, it's important that you never trust yourself enough 
that you don't allow other people into the secret and private decisions of your life. Do not trust yourself with those. <laughs> this is called accountability. Uh, one of the easiest ways to diffuse the idea, this poisonous idea that this can never happen to me, is to let other people into your life, into your decisions, and give them permission in one way or another to look at you and say, this can happen to you. And I see it starting right here with this. So you think, are there people who know what you're doing when you go online? Are there people who know how you're spending your money, how you're spending your time? Are there people, uh, does your spouse have access to your email and your calendar? Do they know where you are? And students, you know, if you're out late, do your parents know where you are? Do you go out of your way to let someone know where you are? And, And these are not meant to limit you. They're meant to protect you. doesn't matter how old you are. We all need that in our lives. These, these save us from incredible uh, harm. So what are the warning signs in your life? Think about that this week. And of course, when these warning signs, when they're working properly, uh, they, they move us to what the Bible calls repentance. Repentance. And in many ways, repentance is the response that you have when you see and trust a warning sign. Right, and if you think about it, you're, say you're walking over a bridge and you're about a third of the way over and all of a sudden you, you, you realize I missed a sign. You turn back and you see the sign reads, warning, unstable, do not cross. If you see the sign and you take it seriously, which you probably should, you turn back. That is repentance. Seeing the sign, asking for forgiveness and turning back, responding appropriately to the warning. But it's the second part, isn't it? It's the second part of the warning that's so hard. It's, it's taking it seriously. That's the hard part. Because turning is easy once you take the warning seriously, right? The problem is, in our spiritual lives, just like Israel, we are so easily tempted to not believe the warning. We tend to think, eh, what's the worst that could happen? It's just this one time. And surely, whatever the worst that could happen, it won't happen to me. And this is where we find Israel on a national scale. They are completely unable to respond to this warning. And this is why their example is so powerful for us, because it shows what happens when warnings no longer work. And as any doctor will tell you, it's not the addict who doesn't know their drug is harmful that is the most dire case. Show them a warning. Show them what's happening to their body, and there's still hope that they might stop. It's the one who has, been, who has seen the warning, who knows it, who can quote it to you, but doesn't care anymore. That's the one who's closest to hopeless. And just like an addict, we spiritually suffer the consequences when we ignore God's warning. And when warnings fail, judgment happens. And God will eventually make good on his warning of repercussions, what he's been saying all along. And in our text this morning, the only thing God has left to do is judge. So starting in verse 18, the text reads, Therefore the Lord was very angry with Israel and removed them out of his sight. And then in verse 23, so Israel was exiled from their own land to Assyria until this day. And of course, eventually the same thing will happen to Judah, the southern kingdom, in chapter 25 of 2 Kings. They were removed from their land. Judgment. Now this may seem harsh, uh, and any time we talk about God's judgment, I think some of us maybe get uncomfortable. But this is incredibly important for the Christian life, this dynamic, and, and so I want to spend some time unpacking it. Because when we think of God's judgment, Uh, we tend to think of of people going to hell. And to be sure, there is a final judgment in Scripture. There is a time when we have ignored God for so long that we no longer want him. 
and we choose separation, eternal separation from him, which is basically what hell is. There, there is a final judgment. But there's also a kind of judgment in Scripture that's not final in this sense. It's not meant to separate us from God, but to teach us about him and to draw us back to him. God's judgment, in this sense, is, is seen any time he allows the natural consequences of our choices to enter into our lives. His judgment can be quite mild. Sometimes it's a verbal rebuke we read in Scripture in our lives. It's a loss of status or something like that. Sometimes it's quite severe, as in the exile of a whole nation, the judgment of a whole nation. But this is, this is important to know in this story, is that God does not punish or judge simply for the sake of causing pain. He does not judge to destroy. In this kind of judgment, he judges to restore, even in the most severe cases. And you see this in Israel's story. In Israel and Judah, they, they trusted in their gods. They trusted in foreign alliances and treaties and armies, and they trusted in their own political savvy to survive these situations. And the sacking of Israel and Judah by Assyria and Babylon was simply the natural consequence of those decisions. They played the game and they lost. God stopped intervening, and he let, he let, them, make their own, he let them make their own choice. This is what you wanted. This is how God judges them. This was also, notice, and this is important, this was also the only way he could get them to see that their idols would fail them. He's teaching them that their idols were false. Sometimes all God can do to get our attention is let things play out the way we want them to. And on a much smaller scale, now this is the, similar, this is the same idea behind a timeout chair for children. No good parent puts their child in a timeout chair simply to torture them. But likewise, no good parent withholds the natural consequences of a child's decisions and actions from them forever. Judgment is necessary in parenting. Otherwise, your children will grow up with destructive habits. They won't learn anything. But judgment in this sense, if you see it, is not motivated by hatred, but by a deep love for the child. To put it another way, God is interested in his people growing up. He shows it with Israel here, and he, and he does it with our lives too. And sometimes his parenting is harsh, but it must be because he loves us that much. This was the only option left for him to get Israel's attention, and sometimes God must similarly disrupt our lives to get ours. Now, perhaps some of you are still thinking, if letting God into my life like that results in judgment, and I, I don't want any part of him. I'm looking for a God who's, who, who loves me and who accepts me and who doesn't judge me, doesn't judge other people, and I understand that. Uh, but to say that is to totally misunderstand what we mean by the word love. And C.S. Lewis uh, is a Christian writer. He puts this so well in his book, The Problem of Pain, and he says, you know, we are, we, all as human beings, we are like God's artwork for his handiwork. And like an artist, in many ways, through his warning and his judgment, he is shaping and crafting us into something perfect and beautiful. And Lewis says this. He says, over a sketch made idly to amuse a child, an artist may not make much trouble. He may be content to let it go, even though it is not exactly as he meant it to be. But over the great picture of his life, the work which he loves, though in a different fashion, as intensely as a man loves a woman or a mother a child, he will take endless trouble and would doubtless thereby give endless trouble to the picture if it were not sentient, if it were sentient or conscious. 
One can imagine a, a sentient picture after being rubbed and scraped and recommenced for the 10th time, wishing that it were only a thumbnail sketch whose making was over in a minute. In the same way, it is natural for us to wish that God designed us for a less glorious and less arduous destiny. But this is, listen to this. But then, we are not wishing for more love, but for less. To ask for a God who does not care who we are becoming, who does not care how we are behaving, who does not care what we are doing to ourselves or to other people, is not to ask for a God of love, but a God of indifference. So know what you're asking for. And do not ignore God's judgment. This is our second lesson. Don't ignore God's judgment. Instead, when judgment enters your life, when our, when our mistakes come back to haunt us and they, they play out in, in, in the circumstances of our life, we need to submit to it. And I know that's a dirty word in our culture, uh, submit. But it is one of the most powerful, it is one of the most courageous things you can do as a human being. Submit to God's opinion of you. And trust him with your future. Trust him with your reputation. Trust him, let the chips fall where they may. Let him decide. And a very famous example of this in scripture is the story of David. And after making a huge public mistake in his own reign as king, he, he, he had an affair and, and murdered someone. Uh, he, God judges him. God intervenes. When, and he does it when David's son Absalom basically incites a coup against his own father, David, and takes over his throne. And as David flees the city because his own son is trying to kill him, there's a man on the side of the road who begins to mock him. This is a common man mocking the king. <laughs> and one of David's aides looks at this guy and looks at David and says, who, who is this guy? I'm going to go kill him. He can't talk to you like that. And David's response is remarkable in 2 Samuel 16. He says, if he is cursing because the Lord has said to him, curse David, who then shall say, what have, why have you done so? Behold, my own son seeks my life. How much more now may this Benjamite do so? Leave him alone and let him curse, for the Lord has told him to do it. It may be that the Lord will look on the wrong done to me and that the Lord will repay me with good for his cursing today. And here's what's so remarkable about this example of David. And when he submits, he submits to this shame for two reasons. First, because he believes it's God's will. And second, and more importantly, he believes it will result in his own good by God's design. It's as if David is saying, I know this is God's will, but he loves me and I trust him with my reputation. I don't need to defend myself here. That is true submission. But we don't usually do that. <laughs> we either fight God's judgment, his correction in our lives, or we run away from it, we avoid it. And Israel in our story actually does both. Zedekiah is the king of Judah. Just before the exile, he's approached by the prophet Jeremiah uh, about God's judgment on the city. And in Jeremiah 21, the prophet basically says to this king, God is going to give this city to Babylon. It's over. It's done. We are being judged. Do not fight. Submit to God's will. Surrender to Babylon, and your life will be spared, is what he says. If you fight, it will be much worse for you. But Zedekiah does not listen, does not believe that. And instead he fights God's judgment. And we read in 2 Kings 25 that when he's captured by the Babylonians, his sons are executed and his eyes are put out and he's taken to Babylon as a prisoner. He fights God's judgment and it ruins his life. He can never accept it. 
Likewise, in 2 Kings 25, when the Judahites uh, finally understand that Babylon is, is, has conquered them, that this is God's judgment, it's done, many of them flee to Egypt in verse 26 instead of submitting to God's judgment. And in the Bible, fleeing to Egypt, the place of slavery, the place where God rescued you from, fleeing back there is the ultimate rejection of God. These people would rather reject him, abandon him forever, than submit to his judgment. So they avoid it. They run away. And we never hear from them again. They are no longer a part of this story. And the hardest part of this, I think, for us, of submitting to God's judgment, is truly believing that we deserve it. That's the hard part. Zedekiah and the people, they don't fight God's will and and run away from him simply because they're afraid. They do it because they don't think they deserve it. And when we encounter trials and the consequences of our actions, our decisions, we are tempted to avoid taking the blame. We blame others, we justify our decision, we get mad at God for allowing this thing to happen, whatever it is. Get mad at others. When we do this, we miss out on two incredible gifts of God. The first gift, when we submit to God's will and his judgment, his correction, is we get the gift of growth. Have you ever met a person who can't admit that they are wrong and that they are sorry? Does anybody like that person? Do you want to be friends with that person? Hopefully none of us in this room are that person. And none of us probably want to be that person. But until we get God's judgment in our lives, until we accept it, accept his voice, we cannot become the kind of person that God desires us to be. And we cannot become the kind of humble person that we all actually do want to be friends with. Because you've met, you've met that person who every day is willing to let God have his way and to admit fault and to take the consequences of what they've done. And, and we like that person. That person has strength. That person has a depth and a growth that only comes with that kind of submission. And the second gift that we miss out on, and this is the most important one, when we, when we do not submit to God's judgment, we miss out on his incredible rescue. We cannot ignore God's judgment because if we do, we, it will inevitably lead to ignoring his rescue. And this is our last lesson from the text. Do not ignore God's rescue. And unless you truly believe you deserve God's judgment, deep down, unless you believe that you, what you really deserve is God's total rejection, then you will never accept or understand his salvation. You will never understand his rescue. And in Israel's case, the exile is not permanent. It's not the end of the story. God rescues them. He brings them back to the promised land. And next Sunday, we're going to talk about that generation who comes back in the the book of Nehemiah. But one of the striking things about that generation is how few of them come back. How few of them leave Babylon. They never understood God's judgment. They don't understand his rescue. And until we understand our sin, our own ignorance of God's warnings, until we understand the evil that is possible in our hearts, we will not see God's grace and his rescue. You see, we deserve exile. We deserve abandonment. But we will never receive it if we trust in God's rescue plan in Jesus Christ. When he was nailed to the cross, he took our exile, he took our pride, and he paid the price. When, When Jesus yells from the cross in the Gospels, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He is experiencing an exile from God. He is experiencing a separation from God that Israel doesn't feel, that no human being has ever felt. 
He literally experiences hell on the cross so that we don't have to. The cross is the ultimate exile, the ultimate rejection. And God in Christ takes all of it, absorbs all of it. And and therefore, this picture of the cross that we see so often, it is simultaneously God's ultimate display of judgment and mercy. Judgment for Christ, mercy for us. If you can see the judgment, if you look at the cross and you can see the judgment you deserve there and you believe it and you feel it, then you can receive the mercy available there. This transforms, when you get this, it transforms your suffering and your pain and even our correction from God into love. Now we are able to trust God's plan when it is hard. You can trust God's judgment when it hurts. You can trust God's mercy when it feels like punishment. You can trust God's love even when you cannot sense it because you can see it. You can see it here, always, forever. We must never forget that Israel's story is our story. We are capable of their evil and much, much worse. We are. We are capable of being judged this way and much, much worse. We are. But we must also never forget God's incredible rescue in Jesus despite us. This rescue is always available to us no matter how far we have fallen, no matter what exile we find ourselves in today. No matter how distant you feel from him, it is always available if you trust it. Let's pray. Father, we do admit that we struggle to to feel the weight of of our sin. We do. To feel the weight of, of the offense we've caused and the pain we've caused. And Father, until we get that, we will not understand the price that was paid on our behalf. So we ask by your spirit that you help us to grasp both and make us people who are not afraid of your will, but who submit to it because of what Jesus has done. We pray this in his name. Amen.